This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. Small business is in the midst of a comeback across America thanks to the reopen, and we want things to go as well as possible for all the small businesses across this country. HR can be a major headache, and especially if you're dealing with some new costs and personnel issues, you need to have an HR setup that works for you. Because when you're running a business, HR issues can kill you if they get out of hand. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. So it's month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash Buck right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash Buck. Bambi.com slash Buck. I just first want to say to all of you, thank you so much for all of the support, the well wishes, the, the kind words. Yesterday was a big day for the team, for Team Buck, for, for all of you, for all of you listen across the country and obviously a, a huge day professionally for me. Um, I'm over the moon. I mean, I couldn't be more excited about this. I can tell you I've done some test shows with my my soon to be co-host Clay Travis, and he is so sharp and his radio skills are so uh, high level. We're going to have an amazing show. And I will say this for sure. He, he brings a whole knowledge of the sports world that I do not have. I don't care. As you know, I don't care about professional sports at all. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, if, if there were no professional sports on TV, it wouldn't make any difference to me. Uh, but Clay is very, very knowledgeable with that and, and incredibly conversant on cultural and political issues, too. So we are going to be in for Rush Limbaugh starting June 21st. I know yesterday I was a little a little bit uh, hazy on the date, and it turns out I think that it has been set. June 21st, 12 to 3, I will be stepping into the, the biggest radio spot on, well, the biggest radio spot out there. Some of you have been asking, well, hold on a second. What about this person or what about that person? I thought so-and-so was taking over for Rush. And I, I want to just have a, a point of clarity here. And this this has to be said because it's true. There's no taking over for Rush. No one takes over for Rush. No one replaces Rush. It's not possible, right? I, you know, this is like, you know, does, does somebody take over for uh, Michael Jordan? Does somebody take over for Wayne Gretzky? Does someone take over for, you know, Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, no, somebody else maybe will be president, but there's no replacing somebody uh, of the of the stature and impact of Rush Limbaugh. And and I understand that as as well as as actually anybody possibly could, given that I was I had the opportunity to fill in for him and understood what he created and, and what he meant for 
conservative media and for the country. So I, I just I want everyone to be very clear. Nobody has to send me a note. I mean, I saw a few of these, and that's fine, saying, Buck, you're great, and I think you're the right choice, but nobody replaces Rush. Trust me, I know that nobody replaces Rush. Um, I'm stepping into a, there is now an, an opening on the radio airwaves that should be filled by the best possible show from the perspective that, that you and I share of patriotism, conservatism, love of country, and fun and, you know, a voice you can count on, a voice you can trust to be there for you. Now, voice is, it'll be Clay Travis, Buck Sexton. And uh, it's, it's a very, very exciting for us. But for those who are asking, hold on, I thought so-and-so was replacing Rush. As I said, there is no replacing Rush. But if you're saying, I thought someone else was taking the 12 to 3 slot. So I work, and this is a little bit of radio inside baseball. I work at iHeartMedia. iHeartMedia is the largest radio company in America and of Rush Limbaugh's stations, the stations that carried Rush's show, the vast majority of them are iHeartMedia stations. Rush was so big that there were other companies, other radio companies out there that that are uh, all considerably smaller than iHeartMedia, and they also carried Rush's show. So some of the other people that you might have heard, oh, so-and-so is going to be going noon to three in the Rush Limbaugh slot. Some of those people, um, what's going on with them is that the non-iHeart radio stations, some of those stations are going to be carrying a different show. But if you're wondering, what will a vast majority, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of the stations that rush was on for decades uh who will be on those stations it will be uh buck sexton and clay travis 12 to 3 june 21st so that that i hope is because i know it is confusing for people and i've been getting a lot of messages asking about that so that's what's going on there i'm i'm going to be stepping in with clay for the iheart stations other stations as well from from companies but the the radio world is is uh, I'll, I'll, there's a lot of different corporate entities involved, but iHeartMedia is by far the by far the largest, and and for Rush station purposes had uh, most of the stations. So, you know, in, in a sense, if you're looking at this as as a real estate situation, if radio is real estate, a vast majority of the Rush acreage, and I mean, I think it's it's at you know we're talking. Certainly more, certainly more than half. I mean, I, I don't know what the exact numbers would be. Um, probably something like uh, uh, 60, 70 percent, maybe, you know, roughly around there uh, will be Buck Sexton and Clay Travis. Because um, there are a number of shows that are starting at uh, the 12 to 3 or, or have started at the 12 to 3. There's a, a handful of them, about a half dozen that I can think of right now. But. Clay and I will be on the, the, the most stations in 12 to 3 um, by far. So that, that's the answer to that question, if you're, if you're wondering. I mean, uh, it's, we're, we're very excited about it, and uh, we are already just thinking about how we can build the best possible show and just do, do the most we can. You know, yesterday I was quoted as saying that I, I, I want to make Rush listeners proud. 
because I, I know that that's you know, the thing to say would be, oh, yes, I, I, I would certainly I would wish that that Rush Limbaugh would, you know, would would, would bless us, you know, if, if he could from from up in heaven. I mean, that's that's no there's no question, but I, I can never really I could never prove that to any of you. But the listeners, those of you who are Rush listeners, I can meet and know that I'm meeting your expectations and, and make you proud in, in honor of Rush's legacy. And that's what I will, what I will try to do um, every day. It was really kind to see, or it was really nice to see how kind so many people were in the, in the business. Uh, Bo Snurdly, Mr. Snurdly wrote a very nice note publicly uh, about how I'm a, I'm a great friend and he wishes me all the best and success with this. And, you know, it's going to be a great show. So that was really nice. I mean, that Rush is right hand man for decades. He, Mr. Snurdly, has, in essence, blessed this enterprise uh, with with Buck and Clay Travis. I'm very pleased about that. Uh, that really meant a lot. And it was also one of those times where there was almost a it was almost a free for all. I mean, I was getting text messages and, and emails from people I hadn't heard from in 20, 25 years in some cases. That's how far and wide news of this spread. So it was quite a launch day or announcement day, I should say. I guess launch day is June 21st. Uh, but to those of you who, and I'm trying to get to as many of the notes, and I appreciate every, I will read every single one of you who sent in an email or a message yesterday of support. I will read it. And I'm going to respond to as many as I can, but there, there were, and I'm over, I mean, it's overwhelming and, and it's wonderful. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. So, I mean, probably I mean, really, I would think now more like, you know, in the thousands, but it's, it's certainly in the hundreds and hundreds. And uh, I would just say, thank you so much for all that. And, and for the people that were expressing the, this feels like a win for me too. I saw that a number of times. Someone writing in, Buck, I've been listening to you since a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. I've been listening since original Saturday squad. That's right. I started on Saturdays, noon to three. I was working six days a week, five days a week for the blaze.com and the blaze TV and the six day, the blaze radio. I had one day off a week for 18 months. That was my schedule. And you know how much I was getting paid for that six day zero. And I was happy to do it because I love radio and I wanted a chance. So those of you who are with me for that, for my free radio show, in essence, no, there was no money. There was no money changing hands in the early months of that at all. I didn't get paid a dime to do that show. Um, those of you who were with me from then to now and, and have joined at any point in the interim, have, have decided that you're going to give me a shot, heard me fill in for Rush. People forget I filled in for Sean Hannity. I filled in as a guest host for Glenn Beck. Uh, so, you know, the, the three greatest radio hosts of of that era and if, if you feel like yesterday was a win for you you're right it is i'm like a band that you were buying five dollar tickets to see at some dive bar in your town in your neighborhood and that meant that i could pay my rent and keep going and keep writing more songs and build and build and you know, now I'm going on a world tour, baby. Now we are off to the races. And it's because of all of you who bought those $5 tickets at the 
dive bar to see me play with my band, so to speak. Right. It's because of all of you. So, yeah, I think if I'm you giving there, there are hundreds, probably thousands of talk radio shows. And when you add podcasts, it's certainly in the it's in the tens of thousands. I mean, there's podcasts everywhere. But there are, are hundreds of radio shows, dozens of syndicated shows across the country. And those of you who chose to listen to this show have my everlasting appreciation and thanks. And also, I mean, and I don't say this to be immodest. I say this because I think this is true. You recognize what a good show is. And you recognize what's worth your time. So you you have discerning taste in radio. And and I, I understand that that also is a little bit of a pat on the back for, for what we do here. But it's a pat on the back for all of us. You know, they, just know that the the odds of me when I started in this business 10 years ago, give or take some months, the odds of me starting this business 10 years ago, having spent my whole 20s not doing any media at all, never went to journalism school, didn't even study journalism. It wasn't wasn't doing anything in public life to end up sitting in at 12 p.m. and occupying the radio space with Clay Travis that had formerly been the home of of the great Rush Limbaugh. The odds of that happening ha- were, was truly a thousand to one, probably low, more like 10,000 to one. And you saw what others recognized as a, you know, a, a horse that looked a little younger than his than his age with a bit of a poofy hair. And but you heard the voice and you knew what I was saying to you came from the heart and you were with me and you stayed with me through moving around to different companies to moving to different cities to all these years. You all listening to this show were the people that no matter what town I was in, no matter what time of day or night, I knew that if, if I started playing my music, you were going to be there cheering, and that made it all worthwhile. So was it a victory yesterday for all of us, for every single one of you listening to this show? You're darn right it was. If you're vaccinated, go enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. Um, certainly, um, you uh, we've, we've all been longing for some time away, some time to do um, the things we love with the people we love. Um, if you're not vaccinated, give your get yourself a gift this holiday weekend and get vaccinated so you can protect yourself, your family, and your entire community. Uh, let me just say, go enjoy your Memorial Day weekend, period. How about that? Let's start with enjoy your time meant for enjoyment, relaxation, and yes, some reflection. I understand it's a holiday weekend. People are going to party. They're going to barbecue. And I love it. I hear this from uh, and we have Sean Parnell with us today on the show, who's a combat veteran. And as you all that you all can tell that the people that I have on this show, the regulars in the show, not only are they good guests and good content people, I really like them. I have good human beings on this show because I think that's I think that's important. I have people that you'd want to be around that you'd you know want your kids to be around the kind of people they could look up to. That's who I have as, as regulars on the show. And certainly, you know, whether it's Sean Parnell or Jesse Kelly or or Jack Posobiec or Ann Coulter or, you know, Carol Markowitz, any of them. Ryan Gerdusky. I mean, these are all they're 
smart, but they're good people. And I, I always I wanted to emphasize that to you because I'm also so appreciative to all of them for how much they give. I, I don't pay them anything to come on the show. They're just giving us me, but all of us, all of you listening their time. But go back to Sean Parnell is going to be with this. You know, he's a combat veteran. He lost a lot of his brothers in arms in Afghanistan. His his platoon outlaw platoon saw really intense combat. And some of them ended up doing many tours of duty. Um, And, you know, he would tell you, and I I love hearing this from veterans, too. This is such a, they say they went out there and fought and some of their brothers made the ultimate sacrifice. And they, I heard this so many times, so that you can have some time off, be with your family, have a burger, have a beer, watch the game, kick back by the pool. You know, They, they do it so that you don't have to be grabbing a, a helmet and an M16 and dealing with, you know, the, the invading Soviets or the Ch- or the Chinese People's Republic Army or whatever. Right. They, they, they do it so that you can enjoy Memorial Day weekend. And those who paid the price did it so you could be with your family and be joyous. So, yes, there should be some reflection. There's the thanks. There's the gratitude. But it's also not not all about solemnity to be sure people should be enjoying i'm going to see my brothers this weekend oh man we're going we've got a range day plan i'm going to the beach we're going shooting we're going to get steaks going to be the three sexton brothers rocking out in miami so yeah if you see me you might even see my two brothers who both have two great dogs too so it'd be the three boy three brothers maybe my one of my brother's fiancés and then the two dogs walking down the beach but what Rochelle Walensky says, like, I understand what she's going for here. I, I, I get why she's saying what she's saying here. But at this point, if you're not vaccinated, you've made a choice to not get vaccinated. That's where we are. If you're not vaccinated, because you don't want to. So enjoy your weekend. There, there is no there's no benefit to not enjoying this weekend and taking some time to just Really, honestly, I, this might sound a little a little bit like a hippie thing, but take some deep breaths outside this weekend and close your eyes and tell yourself, we made it through this pandemic. The future is going to be better and brighter. Yeah, we got to defeat commies and they're trying to ruin the country and all that. But th- that's what I'm here for. You don't worry about that this weekend. Take some deep breaths, you know. Bust out the cooler, be with the people who matter the most to you, have some have some beers or, you know, if you're like me, you want to be a little fancy, crack open some Zimas, have a a joyous, joyful, uh, relaxing long weekend. Don't allow pandemic panic to, you know, we're, we're, we're through it. There's no point in worrying. Anything can happen any day to anybody, right? The worries that you allow to creep into your mind that you shouldn't have, it's just... All it is is cost and no benefit. That's all it is. So please have a have a good, restful, happy Memorial Day weekend. I joined the CIA because of 9-11. 9-11 changed the course of history. So to say it changed my life is just to, to note that I was alive during it because it really changed all of our lives, changed the world. And... I still remember that day very well. I remember having some really just deeply 
frightening you know moments and thoughts go through my head I, my uncle uh through marriage my uncle uh was just happened to be late to work that day you know because you remember it happened before 9 a.m he was late to work otherwise his his company he worked for aon corporation the big insurance corporation and he lost almost everybody he knew in his office uh, Canner Fitzgerald, which lost the most people, I believe, Aon Corporation lost the second most. Canner uh, Fitzgerald was a place that a lot of my high school high school graduates from Regis in New York City, there was a real connection to Canner Fitzgerald. So a lot of Regians, we called them, were lost that day. And I just remember the feeling of both deep sadness and deep rage at what had happened. And I, I even, I even uh, talked to a, a dean at my college. I said, if I wanted to go and sign and sign up, if I wanted to take time off to sign up and, and get into this fight, would you save my spot here in, in college? And I remember they told me, no, I'd have to reapply, which I was shocked. But now, in retrospect, when you when you get the leftist mindset and that my campus was completely overrun with with uh, with Marxists and, and anti-Americanism. I guess it's not surprising, but I'll never forget that. I won't say the dean's name because I don't want to be unfair and it was a private conversation, but I, I, I still remember saying, sir, if I, if I wanted to go, I had in my head, look, I don't even know what I have, what I've made it through Ranger School, what I've made it into selection for special forces, you know, maybe not, but I would have tried. I mean, I was a collegiate rower, so I, at the time, I think I was at least close to being in the realm of having the athleticism to, uh, to get through, you know, Ranger School, but... I don't like uh, I don't like being cold and I don't like taking orders. So that's maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I would have been. This see people say why Why do you go CIA instead of signing up in the military? And I've always said because I just thought I'd be better at CIA. But then when I learned more about what the CIA was, I kind of thought you know probably should have gone to the military. But anyway, so nine eleven we all have our memories of it, and, and obviously today is not a nine eleven. Uh, anniversary or, or Memorial Day, but I'm thinking about it because there are so many comparisons that are constantly being made by Democrats between January 6th and 9-11. And we know that this is, I mean, any person of good sense and good faith understands that this is a complete and total outrage i mean it's it's offensive it's disgusting it's very similar to uh, you know when, when you know, people referring to uh, you know what what happened in in god when people say what happened in gaza is a genocide no it's it's not a genocide and in gaza there were people who who died recently but it's not a genocide so you know we, we need to use terms we need to uh we need to frame issues in a way that deals with facts, deals with reality. And that's why this piece by Deborah Burlingame, uh, Burlingame on the Wall Street Journal today is so, so powerful. And I want, I want to quote pretty extensively from it because you need to hear what this woman has to say in this, in this op-ed, the Wall Street Journal. It's a travesty to compare the Capitol siege to 9-11 more than 3,000 children never saw their parents again. On January 6th, Congress returned 
within hours. Here's how she starts. Quote, Democratic lawmakers want to establish a 9-11 style commission to investigate the siege of the Capitol on January 6th. I would like to see January 6th burn into the American mind as firmly as 9-11 because it was that scale of a shock to the system, commentator George Will said recently. The attempt to reconfigure the domestic terrorist narrative to fit the horrifying story of September 11th is profoundly disheartening. These two events are fundamentally different in nature, scope, and consequences. Mentioning them in the same breath not only diminishes the horror of what happened on 9-11, it tells a false story to the generation of Americans who are too young to remember that day nearly 20 years ago. My brother, Charles Chick Burlingame, was the pilot of American Airlines Flight 77. He was murdered in his cockpit at age 51 in a six and a half minute struggle for control of the airplane. Here is what I want these young people to know. Members of Congress might have a frightening memory from January 6th, but on 9-11, some 200 people in the World Trade Center towers chose to jump from 80 to 100 floors above the ground rather than be consumed by fire. A woman waiting at a lobby elevator bank was burned over 82% of her body when jet fuel from the first plane sent a ball of fire down the elevator shaft and into the lobby. She spent three months in a hospital burn unit and was permanently disfigured. End quote. Seeing what we're, to- what we're, what we're really, really establishing here, right? It's appalling. It's disgusting, false, nonsensical, vicious idiocy to compare a riot where people were literally taking selfies in the Capitol and running around with smiles and having chats, friendly chats in some cases, with Capitol Police. Yes, I know there were people outside that were that were punching and kicking some officers. Yes, I know there were some rioters. BLM and the left punches and kicks officers like it's nothing all the time all over the country. Hundreds and hundreds of times in the last year alone. Mob violence is a part of the Democrat Party's approach to power. And yet they, they really think they're going to lecture us forever about January 6th. How many people did the Capitol Hill rioters kill on January 6th? There's only one accurate answer to that question, and it is zero. Zero. How many uses of lethal force even occurred by the January 6th rioters? Zero. How many people died that day total? Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed woman shot through the neck by a Capitol Hill police officer who drew his weapon on video, gave no warning and shot through a door. That is what happened. These are all facts. Now let's go back to this comparison of January 6th 
with 9-11. And I, why, why would I even give why would I even give my breath to this? Why even spend time on this? Because this is the central Democrat Party narrative of the moment. The fact that they have this quasi senile buffoon, Joe Biden, this sub mediocrity as the commander in chief. And we can all see that they're a bunch of Marxist loons and they're ruining the country and their policies are idiotic. And we see this all playing out before us. How do they try to win the political fight by just pointing to January 6th and saying, see, this is what we're up against. And it's worse than that, too. They point to January 6th in order to justify the crackdown. They point to January 6th and say Donald Trump must be prevented from even being able to run again. His supporters should be monitored on social media. The people who voted for him should be suspect. Their loyalty question to this country. That's the purpose of the January 6th narrative. Well, let's take a look back at reality and history with this Deborah Burlingame Wall Street Journal op-ed. They want to compare January 6th to 9-11? Let's see how that actually compares. Quote, There are countless harrowing stories of death, destruction, and heartbreaking loss from 9-11. More than 3,000 children lost parents. Eight young children were killed on the planes. Recovery personnel found 19,000 human remains scattered all over lower Manhattan from river to river, including on rooftops and window ledges. Victims' remains were still being recovered years later by utility workers and construction crews. Some families received so many notifications of remains that they couldn't take it anymore and asked for them to stop. More than 1,100 families received nothing. Their loved ones went to work that morning and disappeared. End quote. I'm sorry, but I don't care if she tears up I don't care if she's going to tell us that she thought that it was all over. AOC's trauma, among other members of Congress, at the thought of something bad happening at the Capitol when they weren't even in the Capitol building or the rotunda or anywhere near it when this was happening, is not the same thing as thousands of people incinerated or crushed in a mass terrorist attack in New York and Washington, D.C., by enemies who seek our total annihilation to this day, I might add. And to compare the two things is outrageous and disgusting and dishonorable. And people who do do so deserve your contempt. The Democrat Party is building a central narrative of why they should be in power and why they should have the right to oppress you, and the narrative is built upon lies. They are worthy of your contempt. The article goes on. The attack brought down our nationwide aviation system, shut down the New York Stock Exchange for days, destroyed or rendered uninhabitable 16 acres of lower Manhattan, including underground subway and commuter lines, and destroyed a section of the Pentagon. Rebuilding at Ground Zero is still incomplete, and U.S. troops are still in Afghanistan. On January 6th, 
Congress resumed its session that evening. It is deeply offensive and sad that the brutal and harrowing memories of the worst terrorist attack in American history are being deployed by uh, political partisans. They are using 9-11 not as an example of what the American people endured and overcame together, but explicitly to divide, to stoke hatred, and to further a political agenda aimed at stigmatizing the other party and marginalizing ordinary Americans from participating in the political process. That is the real threat to democracy. It should matter that the vast majority of the people who went to the Capitol protest that day didn't believe they were there to overthrow the U.S. government, or it must now be said to kill anyone. There have been real terrorist attacks on the Capitol, but those must be forgotten because they came from the political left. In 1971, the Weather Underground, a Marxist-Leninist terror group whose goal was the overthrow of the U.S. government through violent armed revolution, blasted a hole through the ceiling on the Senate side of the complex. It also bombed the Pentagon in 1972 and the State Department in 1975. In 1954, four Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire with automatic weapons from the House Visitors Gallery with members in the chamber for a quorum call. Five representatives were wounded, including one, Alvin Morell Bentley of Michigan, who was hit in the chest. The perpetrators received sentences ranging from 50 to 75 years. One was released in 1978, and President Carter granted clemency to the others the following year, of course. One week after the shooting, the House was back to business as usual. That was a time when more members of Congress had served in the military and with the world still recovering from World War II, one doubts that anyone likened the attack to Pearl Harbor or the Battle of Iwo Jima. We are living in perilous times when a modern democracy deploys forces of intimidation, whether government, corporate media, or cultural institutions, to promote the ruling majority's propaganda. It is, a good, it is time for a good people to stand up and object. The world-changing attack of September 11, 2001 shouldn't be used either as precedent or moral authority to create a commission whose sole purpose is to turn a straightforward law enforcement failure into destructive political theater, end quote. Deborah Burlingame in the Wall Street Journal, one of the best, most important op-eds I have read in years. I can't imagine anyone voting against establishing a commission on the greatest assault since the Civil War on the, on the Capitol. But at any rate, hey guys, I can't for ice cream. So Joe Biden is either a moron or a liar or both. It's commander in chief, folks. The greatest assault on our Capitol since the Civil War. No, I think people open firing inside Congress and, and hitting members of Congress is a greater assault. You know, I would argue that a greater assault on our democracy occurred when you had a Bernie Sanders supporter engage in a mass assassination attempt of conservative members of Congress at a baseball field in Alexandria, Virginia. That was only a few years ago. You can ask Steve Scalise or Senator Rand Paul or others about that one. Explicitly targeted, not just because they were members of Congress, because they were conservative members of Congress. An actual mass assassination attempt With a semi-automatic rifle, Steve Scalise took a bullet, almost died. We're going to get lectures from this fraud 
this flimsy imbecile, Joe Biden, the greatest assault on our capital. No, I think the leftists, Marxists who have tried to bomb the Capitol, who have opened fire in the Capitol and actually hit people in the Capitol with guns. um, I think that's a bigger assault, Joe. They only can rule by and through lies, friends. And that's why we have to stop them every time we can, every chance we get. We are going into a holiday weekend, but it's Memorial Day weekend, as you know. It's, it's a solemn weekend, one in which you should reflect on your country. Be with family, be with friends, take time to rest and recuperate, to be sure, but also to think about what it really means for those who have uh, paid the ultimate price for this country, for their family, loved ones, and for those who served alongside them as well. To talk to us about his thoughts, his reflections going into this Memorial Day weekend, we have Sean Parnell with us. He is the author of Outlaw Platoon, as well as the Eric Steele novels. He was a former Army Ranger officer, saw combat in Afghanistan, and he's currently a candidate for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Sean, great to have you back. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me. How are you feeling going into this this holiday weekend about, you know, uh, the it feels to me a little bit like the American people are not as as dialed in on what's what's happening with our armed forces, what's going on with the veteran community. I mean, 10 years ago, everybody with the still the war on terror going on and more focus on Iraq, Afghanistan, ISIS. It felt like it was more at the forefront. Now, you know what we see mostly, it seems, Sean, is coverage of you know, critical race theory training in the military and uh, and transgender ideology and a lot of politicization. What is the status as you see it right now? I mean, how how are our armed forces doing? Yeah, it's it's a great question and a great point. And I think you're right. I think that that the sacrifice that that the men and women in uniform make for our country is sort of on the back burner right now. And I think that's part of the reason why I think it's so important, uh, you know, for, for like my personal mission, right, is to help bridge the gap between, you know, people who protect freedom on a day to day basis and people who enjoy it. Right. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I mean, going into this weekend, like every day is is Memorial Day for me. And I, I think, you know, I've lost 30 of my closest friends in, in 20 years of war. And like, look, I'm 39 years old and you think about it, we've been at war for 20 years. That's like half of my life we've been at war and I've lost 30 people, 30 people. And so, you know, for me, it's like I, I, I just try every day to live a life that is worthy of their sacrifice. You know, like they didn't get to come home. Uh, they gave their life for this country. But I, I know in my heart of hearts that they would that they would want me to live my life to the fullest. So every day that I wake up, every day that I draw breath is, is a blessing. And I try to earn it. You know, if you watch the movie Saving Private Ryan, where Tom Hanks's character at the end is just like, earn this. I think that's what he means. Like, live a full life, you know, and and honor the sacrifice of those who didn't make it home. And, and so, you know, when I talk about bridging that gap between veterans and civilians. I think part of the way that we can do that, Buck, is by talking to the next generation, right? Like making sure that the legacy of those men and women who were lost in service to this country is passed on, right? And so my kids, I've got three little kids, uh, Ethan, Emma, Evan, 12, 11, and eight. And I talk to them 
about my soldiers, you know, who didn't get to make it home. And I make and I make sure that they understand, you know, what the cost of freedom really is. When you think about what was driving your, your brothers in arms in, in Afghanistan a day in and day out to, to put on the helmet, carry the rifle and, and get out there and take risks, knowing that they had family waiting for them back home. They had loved ones, people that they were, you know, were, were, were hoping they were going to get to see again. And in some cases, as you've, you've told us, they did not get to see them again. What was the psychology, the mentality, the motivation? Uh, how, how does one do that? How did those yeah. men get up and do what they did? Yeah, and what's so fascinating about this, Buck, is that the guys that I led, right, back then there were no women in the infantry, so that's why I'm referring to them as men. But, you know, my men, like the job that they had before carrying a machine gun in heavy combat on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan was like, you know, high school shortstop, you know. So these guys weren't highly trained, like special forces operators or Navy SEALs. These were kids that just raised their right hand, volunteered to serve this country because they loved this country. I mean, that was what it boiled down to. And in combat, I watched these kids perform, you know, one extraordinary, it was just like one triumph of the human spirit after the next, you know. And I think what it boiled down to, Buck, was that we didn't want to let each other down. You know, you know, they train you like when you go into basic, right, or boot camp, like you're an individual, but they train you to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Right. And that's why you hear from your drill instructors like, oh, we're only as fast as our slowest person. Like, so the, the military trains you to shoot, move and communicate together as a team. And then you go to war and you fight, bleed and die together as a team. And the team is all that matters. And, it, and it's like I'm the oldest of four siblings. Like, I love my brothers uh, and, and my sister. I'm closer and know more about my soldiers, 40 of my men in, in combat than I would ever be with my own family. And, you know, I could tell you someone who's walking away in the middle of the night, 20 meters away from me, just, I could tell you exactly who they are based on how they walk. Like that's how, that's how well you know these people. And so you just don't want to fail them, Buck. You know, I had a soldier, we were baited into an ambush in Afghanistan. His name's St. Jean. Uh, got shot in the head, miraculously survived, wrapped his head up like a mummy and was out of the wire in two or three days after that. I'm like, man, you don't have to do this. Like, you can just rest, right? Heal up because I have to do it because, you know, I'm not any, you know, like my everyone else is sacrificing. I should be out there sacrificing too. So I think it was that fear of letting each other down that drove people to do extraordinary things. We're speaking to Sean Parnell, author of Outlaw Platoon, as well as the Eric Steele series of, of uh, action and combat novels. He's a former Army Ranger, candidate for Senate in Pennsylvania in the next election cycle, already declared. Sean, it, it does seem increasingly like pop culture or leftist culture or however we want to describe it, views uh, shows of patriotism as outdated outmoded perhaps even views it with a little bit of a dismissiveness or disdain as somebody who was outside the wire with those who who paid the ultimate price and was was close to them as you've described in a way that only combat can bring men close together why do you think it is that there's this this trend in this country what what, what can, and what can people do to push against it of patriotism is somehow unfashionable in america now yeah, you know, it, it's a great point. You know, you, you see 
stories, you know, constantly, you know, on, on Netflix or Amazon or even on the, on the big screen, uh, pushed by Hollywood of sort of negative veteran experiences or coming home and, and really struggling. And of course those struggles are real. Like in many ways, veterans come home and war changes you in ways that you never anticipate. You, sometimes you can come home and feel like an exile in your own country when your family doesn't understand you uh, it could, because you've changed. All that's real. Um, but the reality is, is that I, looking back on my experience in combat, right, and uh, there are lots of negative experiences, surrounded by death and destruction every single day, but I'd go back and do it in a second because I love the men around me. I love this country. And, and, and I know that my men feel the same way, right? So it wasn't necessarily about all of those, those negative experiences, although they certainly affect us moving forward. The core and the heart of, of ever, anyone, I think, that's fought in, in, in wars is, is a love of this country. And I, and I wish that we could see more Hollywood films that, that reflected that love of country. And I think the last one that we really saw was, was American Sniper with Chris Kyle. You remember that when that movie came out? It set records, man. People Smash were lining it. Up, yes, yes, people were lining up around the block to see that movie because people in this country, there is a desperate need for people in this country to 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 want to be proud of their country and they want to see that reflected on the screen. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 a little bit upsetting. I wish Hollywood would sort of shift gears a little bit uh, and, and start putting out more patriotic stuff because it's important. Speaking of Sean Parnell, former Army Ranger, best-selling author, Senate candidate in Pennsylvania. Sean, what do you say to people who would ask you, is America still worth literally fighting for, as in going to war, fighting for this country, given how it's going? There's a lot of pessimism out there. You, you were in combat. You know about the sacrifice that others made who did not come home. If someone said to you, you know, is is this country still worth taking those risks for? What do you say? Absolutely. One hundred percent. This country uh, is the best country on the face of the planet. It's exceptional, not because, you know, we're perfect. Of course, we've made mistakes in the past. But what makes this nation exceptional is we've always sought to right the ship and right wrongs that, that, that have been committed. You know, when when a tsunami killed you know, over a quarter of a million people in Southeast Asia, uh, those people weren't calling for Iran or China or North Korea. They were calling for the United States of America. When an earthquake in Pakistan killed 80,000 people, the Pakistanis were calling for America. Again, not China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. They were calling for us because we're the greatest benevolent superpower that the world has ever known. And America needs great people to stand up and defend her, you know, and so I don't buy into the leftist narrative that this country is fundamentally bad and therefore needs to be fundamentally changed. I just it's not true. We should reject that narrative with every fiber of the of, of our being and stand up and, and defend this country because hey, it's worth fighting for. And uh, Sean, I just want to switch gears for a second and ask your thoughts about I mean, this is not really about Memorial Day specifically, although it, it obviously ties into the sacrifice of those who served in Afghanistan and, and what, our, what our legacy as a country is going to be there. We may be out, they say, meaning U.S. troops will be out by July. Um, that's a, that's it could happen that quickly. There's also reporting that the Taliban is taking back uh, or taking surrenders, actually, and taking back territory already. 
What do you make about that as somebody who was there in in the dirt, up in the mountains, getting shot at? What do you make about this decision and this process of withdrawal? Well, I'll tell you that, you know, I understand the humanitarian concerns, right? Like I've, I've, I talk about this a lot. I've talked about it with you. I've talked about it in public. There are people in Afghanistan who emerged from the shadows, little girls that went to school and said that, you know, we're going to work with Americans to make our country a better place. I recognize that if we pull out, those people are going to be targets. But um, I'm, I also recognize that we have an obligation to the American people and, and our sons and daughters in this country as well. And, and, and what has been very upsetting to me about the war in Afghanistan, like if you and I went out to four, three or four different Ford operating bases in Afghanistan and asked a random American private, hey, what's your mission? What's your mission? What's your mission? You'd get a different answer from every one of them. And when that happens, Buck, it creates hesitation, and that hesitation in combat can cost lives. And so to me, you know, I, I, as a commander, if I were, if I were wave a magic wand – and, and make a decision, I'd be making a tactical and strategic decision to just say, you know what, it's time to go. Um, you know, and, and that doesn't mean complete wholesale pullout. I think, I think it's, 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 it's possible to have special forces and ranger battalions pre-positioned to go after the worst of the worst to keep that country from going back to be a, being a Petri dish for terrorists. Um, but if people don't have clarity on what the mission is, it puts our, it puts Americans in danger. And I think it's I think it's time to go. Sean Parnell, combat army ranger and best-selling author. Uh, go check out uh, his Senate campaign. Sean, what's the website? Parnellforsenate.com. Parnellforsenate.com. Sean, man, appreciate you as a friend and, and greatly appreciate your service uh, as somebody who was out there and, and really did the work and, and took the risks and the sacrifices. God bless you, your family, and have a good Memorial Day weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Take care. The truth is out there. Producer Mark, do you, did you even did you even see the original X Files? Do you do you know what I'm talking about here? I saw the X Files movie, and it was absolutely putrid. So I never wanted to watch the TV show. The show was pretty awesome in the early days. The show was a phenomenon. I didn't even know there was a movie. That's sad, but that reminds me a little bit of the Entourage movie, which, I mean, I think you can make a strong case. Look, Entourage, the HBO TV show, is just like a, a man brain candy. I mean, it's just worthless nonsense, but it's entertaining, and, you know, it brings you into it and everything else. I know you like Entourage. I like Entourage. It's entertaining. It's good, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not dealing with, like, issues of... <laughs> of life it doesn't it doesn't explain why we're all here right um and and the entourage did you see the entourage movie yeah it was okay it wasn't as good as the series that's oh sure. come on it was okay it was like a little below average i wouldn't say it was the worst movie i've ever seen though like i say about x-files i'd give you think the x-files the x-files movie must have been the most garbage thing ever because so I, I would give entourage the movie a d minus but uh, and, and I like the series, to be clear. I watched every episode of the HBO Entourage series, but it's like sex in the city for men. I mean, I understand, you know, that's the, the, the whole thing. I, I just bring this up. We got we're getting diverted now to Entourage because I'm thinking X-Files. There's all this UFO stuff out there. And this is where I mean, here here today. This is just this is just on Fox News dot com. Tucker's been talking about UFOs on his show. 
You know, it's all all over the place. I remember when I was at Hill TV. Oh, gosh, what was it now? Two, three years ago, two years ago, uh, we did a segment on on UFOs with some of the guys that I'm seeing now popping up and talking about it. Quote, the filmmaker who leaked footage of UFOs harassing a warship off the coast of California in 2019 released new radar footage Thursday that purportedly shows the USS Omaha being swarmed by unidentified aerial phenomena. Jeremy Corbell claims the video was filmed in the Combat Information Center of the ship on July 15, 2019. Earlier this month, he introduced footage taken aboard the USS Omaha, a mysterious spherical object flying over the ship before disappearing into the ocean. This is a corroborative electro-optic data demonstrating a significant UFO event series in a warming a warning area off San Diego, Corbell tweeted Thursday. The, n- the new unclassified clip shows sailors aboard the Omaha observing as many as nine UFOs swarming the ships at speeds approaching 160 miles an hour. Holy bleep, they're going fast, a sailor has heard saying. End quote. That's on Fox News today. P- Producer Mark, are, are UFOs real? Uh, I don't think so. Really? I'm, You're a skeptic? I'm still not convinced. You're a skeptic still. I... It's just all the years of watching movies with them in them that they just seem fake. If I ever see one of the, you know, you can see, there's video evidence of it, then yeah, maybe I won't be able to deny it anymore. Hmm. I, I, I don't know why. I thought maybe you'd be a believer. But then again, you do have a, uh, a, a somewhat uh, salty approach to things. I tend to be a realist. Yeah, I'm... You know, I, I feel like... They have all these videos and there's clearly there's clearly unexplained phenomena out there. And, you know, that 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 indicates something. But then again, I'm somebody who sits here and and says, guys, we need to stop thinking that science is is some new God for all of us. When, you know, uh, to borrow what was it, the comedian Lewis Black a long time ago said, is milk good for you? And then just watch like all the scientists fight. You know, I mean, this is. There's a lot out there that is, I know that's a silly example, but there's a lot out there that we can't explain. But all this UFO stuff, I don't know. I just don't want little green men to kidnap me and start probing me and stuff. That sounds bad. So please, please, UFOs, don't don't bother me. Bother other people. There are a lot of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a few of them. And I got to tell you, ExpressVPN is the best on the market. First, let's start with what's a VPN, Buck? Why do I need one? A VPN is a virtual private network. It hides your IP address and it makes sure that big tech can't spy on you and sell your data the way they want to. Also, who knows what they're going to do with all that stored information on you in the future? Authoritarianism has been rising in America over the last year, and we know the left can't be trusted. That's why you need to protect yourself with privacy and encryption from ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data, and it's the easiest one out there to use. It's just an app you download to your phone. You fire it up, you click one button, and then you connect. I know if you're thinking, oh, Buck, a VPN, it sounds technical. ExpressVPN makes it so easy. Just take this step now, and you'll see what I mean. I use my VPN every day. Protect yourself with ExpressVPN. Go to ExpressVPN. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. Get an extra three months free when you sign up for a one-year package. That website is expressvpn.com slash buck. You'll sign up in a matter of minutes. You'll be up and running, 
and you'll have privacy online so that big tech isn't logging everything you do. ExpressVPN.com slash buck to learn more. How close are we really to the end? I mean, the actual end of this pandemic and the restrictions, the rules, regulations, prohibitions from it. We got our friend Carol Markowitz with us now. She's a columnist for the New York Post. She's been all over this all the time. Carol, great to have you back. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You know, Ron DeSantis said today something that I I thought was really interesting. Uh, He said they used to act like Floridians were crazy for walking out around without masks on. And I mean, in the last few months. And Mm -hmm. now he says we all understand, right, that the crazy people are the vaccinated New Yorkers who are walking around (laughs) with three masks on. What what do you You see going on here? Yeah. It's so funny because, like, it, I, it used to be that when someone insulted New Yorkers, I'd want to fight. Like, I, I feel like you probably were the same. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, we knew we lived in a crazy place, but, like, I could say it. You can't say it. <laughs> um, but now, you know, he's right. He's absolutely right. My neighborhood of Park Slope is still mostly masked. Almost all the children are masked in the park, walking around. Um And I don't see this really ending anytime soon. And it's really wild because I I just wrote a whole piece that I uh, had lived in Florida for four and a half months. And your show was one of the few places that I talked about it previously, uh, but how normal our lives were there. My kids went to school every day. They played sports, maskless. They went to after school. It was just a wonderland of sanity. And it was very hard to come back. And it's very hard to be here. Yeah, I walk around now and I see depending i mean maybe anywhere i'd say from 30 to 50 to maybe 60 percent of people masked outside in beautiful Mm -hmm. weather in new york city now and and for me it's like if you're so concerned about covid that you would ever mask outside i I refuse to believe that you haven't already been vaccinated yes so what, what i think everyone needs to understand here is that the outdoor maskers in places like new york and i've talked to a friend in la it's it's in la mm-hmm. too it's in these democrat enclaves these are vaccinated people who are right. choosing to wear masks outside Where they even though the cdc necessary. has said this is unnecessary for unvaccinated people right Right. And, you know, I keep highlighting the, the Fauci line where he says the risks, the risk outdoors is very low, as we've been saying all along. And I just I can't. That line makes me crazy. It's like you have not been saying that all along. Buck and I have been saying that all along. Yep. But you have not been saying that all along. I think there's a tremendous rewriting of history that's going on in a number of ways, including the the change in perception about the lab leak hypothesis. Oh, yeah. I remember I mean, folks, you know, some of you don't work in the media. You you wouldn't necessarily know this part of it. You could get hit. You can get dinged on Facebook or on social media platforms at one point, Mm -hmm. which really affects your business. And it can really hurt you professionally for sharing the lab leak thesis. That's how sure the scientific establishment was. I mean, Carol, that's just one of many examples that I think people should all this has proven to us. We're speaking to Carol Markowitz, columnist for The New York Post, for anybody joining us here. Uh, this should prove to everybody that the notion of scientific consensus, whether it is on masks, school closures, lockdowns, where this yeah. virus came from, it's either true or it's not. It's not. We think it might be true. So we're going to act like it's true. That's not the same thing. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because now the CDC says you don't have to mask outside if you're not vaccinated. So if you write something on Facebook, for example, saying, no, you, you should mask outside, even if you're vaccinated, even if, you know, if, you're, if you are, if you aren't, you should mask outside. Facebook's not going to take off that comment. It's, they're not going to say that you're going against the CDC guidelines. It only went in one direction. It only went in the direction of people that wanted sanity, that wanted to follow the science, and never in the other way. Now, do you think they're going to change the rules for summer camps? I, I've seen some early yeah. indicators that they're saying the CDC is, is, is realizing how stupid this is, that summer camps, kids are going to be masked outdoors just because kids aren't vaccinated, but kids are at yeah. low risk and outdoor is low risk. Anyway, like it, it's even hard right. to keep up with the contradictions. Uh, I know yeah. Cuomo, you wrote about this Cuomo's wacky mm-hmm. new rules for kids at summer camp flout the science yet again. That was uh, that was uh, last week. Yeah. Are, are we seeing any change in this? Yes. So I wrote that column on Friday. On Monday, Cuomo administration relented a little bit. So actually what happened in New York, um, and it's happening in other states too, they take the CDC guidelines, they completely butcher it, even worse than it is. So what New York did was they said, okay, you have to wear... Um, masks at summer camp and day camp. You also have to wear masks at sleepaway camp where you're sharing a bunk with people. You're not wearing a mask while you sleep. And then when you go outside, you put the mask on to be with the same people. Um, And then the last thing they did was they changed the rules for daycares. Daycares were allowed to set their own guidelines uh, for kids two to five. And it's, I mean, it's crazy and insane that we ever mask two-year-olds anywhere. But daycares sort of had the flexibility to say to parents, you know, either wear all masks daycare or wear a mask optional daycare or whatever. The new guidelines change that as well. So by Monday, the Cuomo administration, I guess, had heard from plenty of people, um, especially from daycares, saying this is crazy. Why would the rules tighten now? Uh, and then they also relented a few days later on camps and they said masks will now be suggested but not required. And, I, I you know, it's a win. It's a win for sanity. But I feel like this shouldn't be the case. We, sh- we don't need to have an outcry over doing something that has no scientific basis whatsoever. We should be following the science. I know about we're never going to do that, but it's just it's gotten very old and where it's May tw- 2021 and we're still doing crazy things. And it makes me crazy. It makes me crazy, too. And, and you know, I've I've been saying for a long time and you and I have been having that we've been having this conversation for a year <laughs> I will say that history, data, fact and rationality have proven us to Mm -hmm. be on the right side of history, the right side of this issue. No question about it. But I would say things along along the lines here to people, uh, to audience and just to anyone who would listen to me about how this really had become it had gone beyond even a political political signifier, which it clearly is, right? I mean, for a lot of people, the mask was like a Biden-Harris MAGA hat, you know, the equivalent Mm -hmm. of a MAGA hat. But beyond that, it took on an an almost religious virtue signaling significance for people. Like, this is what I do to be a good person and do my part. And what you see now is that's clearly true because a lot of people continue to do this. And I'm talking about in the gym I was in the gym yesterday. I'm the only person, Carol, in my gym of, you know, there's 10 or 15 people in there yesterday without a mask on. And the building is actually not enforcing the rule anymore. Maybe somebody I don't know who probably don't know. Maybe somebody's pulled down the mask signs, but the building 
<laughs> I don't know who it was, but the building isn't enforcing. And I talked to them about it. They're just, but what they're, I understand their perspective on this is we think people are too scared. And so we don't want to scare them more. We just want it to sort of gradually happen. Why would it yeah. be gradual, Carol? But it's already been gradual. It's already been gradual. It's been a long, long time of gradual. So we need to speed it up now. Um, I was in Costco today, uh, maskless, because now that's permitted. And I was one of the very few people in there with no mask. I, you know, a guy who was also maskless walked by me and we kind of looked at each other like, can you believe everybody else here is masked? But what my concern is, I, I know that there's so many people virtue signaling with this. I, you know, I live in the, the epicenter of that virtue signaling in Park Slope. But I also am very concerned that there is a mental health crisis here. I think people, a lot of people are scared. Um, the people in Costco today were not virtue signaling. They either had not heard that the guidance had changed. I mean, after all, there's no sign anymore that you have to mask, but there's also no sign saying like no mask required, right? And then they probably haven't heard the change from Governor Cuomo's office or, you know, generally the CDC guidelines. A lot of, I, I, heard, a lot, I heard a lot of Russian today, my community in there, and I, I'm, I know that they'd have their masks off if they knew. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm worried on two fronts. Either people haven't heard the news that you're allowed to wear masks in some places now. I mean, not wear masks. Um, or they're afraid, which really worries me because there's no talking to people at that point. It's like the logic no longer makes sense. And it's no, there's nothing we can do to get them back from that fear. I mean, the fact that people still, I can tell, they look at me and I, I think they're smart enough to not. Well, a lot of them know who I am, so they also stay away for a lot of reasons. But they know not to come up to me and, and get aggressive, which they used to do about masking, which was always irrational, unreasonable right. and crazy. Right. But they, people used to get you know, really aggressive with you about it. Um, but I mean, the fact that I'm alone in this, I mean, there are people who are I see them. I mean, they're they're choking in their soggy, wet mask <laughs> on the treadmill and they don't have to anymore. But it's it is a, it's a mental illness. I mean, this is really where we are. It, it, it's a mental illness. Just, yeah. We only got about a minute, Carol. I just want to ask you. We're speaking to Carol Markowitz. Everyone, just tell me: Are, are kids going to have to mask up in school? Is that going to happen? You know, I I'm very worried about that. I just don't see where the teacher union relents on anything. They haven't had to yet. Nobody has made them um, do anything, and I think they just can keep applying the pressure and. The bigger concern to me, I mean, I'm very worried about kids having a mask, but I'm also just, I don't even see them relenting on the three feet of social distance, which is ridiculous. Um, I, if that if that keeps up, schools will not open normally in September. Period. End of story. I'm worried about it, too. Carol Markowitz for the New York Post, everybody. Carol, it's good to be Thank right. You. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, we're at the, you know, I wrote a letter to the state school board just so people out there in your audience understand how the process works in Georgia. We have a constitutional officer that's elected statewide like me, uh, the state school superintendent. There's a board that helps him govern schools, set curriculum in our state that I appoint. So that's why I went through the process that I did. The state school board's looking forward to taking this issue up in the proper transparent way that things should be done in education, you know, versus a national mandate that the President Biden and, and really a lot of radical people in Washington, D.C. are trying to slam down the state's throat. I mean, we're not a racist state. We're not a racist country. Uh, we don't need to be teaching propaganda in our schools. We need to let local educators decide what the curriculum is at the state level and, and at the local level, and that's what we're going to do in Georgia. We need to decide the curriculum at the state and local level, Governor Kemp says. Critical race theory should not be taught in schools because 
how think about it this way how how could critical race theory make this a better country what does it really tell us that we need to do ultimately if you take critical race theory to its ends it ends up making you believe that there should be a lack of equality before the law to borrow from a supreme court the best way to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race and critical race theory insists that for the purposes of balance equity parity whatever they want to call it you have to discriminate on the basis of race and on a very arbitrary scale at that asian americans they're they're not going to get as many benefits from critical race theory because of the lack of historical oppression similar to what african-americans experienced in this country but latinos get under critical race theory rhetoric greater benefit than asian americans do i mean the whole thing you get into this absurd hierarchy of different racial and ethnic backgrounds with regard to how the state is supposed to to treat them and this is it's just absurd and really damaging Right. They're saying that, well, we should have because of historical inequality, really historical inequities, to use the preferred term. Now, we have to balance things out today by treating people with inequity now. So it doesn't matter what you did, no matter what race, it doesn't matter what you did, doesn't matter how hard you've worked or not hard you've worked. You fall into a category and that category must be identified as an important reason for different treatment for you one way or another. We can all see how this is a terrible idea and how much this undermines faith in the state and creates divisions among all of us. But here is an eighth grade teacher at a National Education Association Zoom call. And and this is this is a a total in academia and educational circles, this is a fixation. Critical race theory is the fad of the moment. It's not new, but it is it is ascendant in ways that we have to pay close attention to. Play clip three. I'm going to say something that's not nice and not sweet, but it's true. If you're not evolving into an anti-racist educator, you're making yourself obsolete in this field of profession. Um, our district is only getting browner and browner with our children. And so if, you know, obviously you can't change your melanin, all right, but you can change your mind so that you can actually function in a, a district that is full of BIPOC children. So if you're being resistant, I understand that, but you're gonna have to eventually come to the light because if you're going to keep up those old views of um, colonialism, um, it's going to lead to being fired because you're going to be doing damage to our children, um, trauma. And so as we fire the teachers who sexually abuse our children, we will be firing the, the teachers who do racist things to our children and traumatize them. Yeah. Uh, notice the usage of, of language here and jargon. BIPOC. This is a term black and black indigenous and people of colors with the acronym stands for BIPOC is everywhere now because this is the way the left does their 
indoctrination. First, you have to use certain words. That signifies to others and to the person saying it that you are part of the ideology. It's almost like a secret handshake. Anybody who goes around now saying BIPOC is telling you that they are a critical race theory supporting leftist racial Marxist. That's what's really happening today. And they want to train your kids in this stuff and create a whole lot of strife among young children who will listen to this stuff and say, hold on, this doesn't make sense to me. Why am I being judged? I didn't do anything right or wrong. I'm just being me. My skin color should have no bearing on how I'm treated. But the educational profession is embracing this stuff all across the country. Even if you are in a state that you think is a little more sane, a little more conservative, there are the at least the the early stages of CRT indoctrination going on. And it could be a lot further along than you'd think. So just know that anytime you hear this jargon, anytime you hear about about uh, BIPOC communities and, and the trauma from from historical colonial approaches or whatever, you're dealing with a, a racial Marxist rhetoric. All right, she's back with us, my good friend and 13-time New York Times best-selling author and Coulter.com to read her latest every week, published on Wednesdays. Ms. Coulter, good to have you. Congratulations, Buck Sexton. I think I'm happier of this news than you are. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, and it's It's been quite a day, and I, I always... We love having you on as a guest, and for those listening, Anne's been so encouraging and supportive of me in radio now for, for a long time. So, Anne, thank you very, very much. Uh, finally, conservative media making a good decision. <laughs> anyway, so are you going to be going to the Japanese Olympics? I, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, they're considering not doing them now because this is what the interesting part. The Japanese aren't getting vaccinated. They're only like 2% vaccinated, which I find interesting because um, if you care about these sorts of things, the Japanese have very high IQ. Huh. And I'm dying to know why they're not getting vaccinated. I'm, I need to look into this one, too. I've been a little bit, uh, little bit out of the loop on that one for today. I'm, but I'm actually still dying to know why there are vaccinated people walking around New York City outside with, with three masks on. <laughs> I mean, this is really everything that I've said about these people for a very long time is now being proven true in real time. And that's what I'm actually seeing. Though I, I cheered on your small victory yesterday when you went into a gym without a mask. A guy saw you without a mask and pulled his mask down. So there were yep. two of you maskless in a gym. That's right. There were two of us. There were about 10 people in there. But he saw me. He said, well, at least if you're unmasked, I'm going to go unmasked. And so every little bit of freedom helps. Tell me this, Ann. You got, we got this column, Florida Woman Saner Than Media. This is your latest from this week at AnnCoulter.com. More on the Rebecca Jones saga. This is the woman who said that Ron DeSantis was, you know, cooking the books on COVID numbers. What do we need to know? The media has done this so many times. They will just latch on to any lunatic as long as, oh, they're saying something we want to hear. Um, she's just like that. Remember Jackie Coakley, the hero of the Rolling Stones story about the UVA rape, gang rape at a fraternity, the white fraternity boys lift its leg. It was this shocking story that even, I think it was um, um, Richard Bradley, a liberal I used to work with at George Magazine, um, he was one of the first 
to say, this story doesn't ring true. Anyway, um, of course, it all completely fell apart. Um, there was the CBS National Guard story. Um, there were all kinds of, of, of lunatics in, in the Russia investigation. Now we have the one going after Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, should be flattered that the media is, is so gunning for him. Um, he kept Florida pretty much open after about, I think, a month, one month shut down. The schools were open. Um, people mostly went about their business. In fact, he, he wouldn't allow, at, at some point, he wouldn't allow towns to, to require um, municipalities, that is, to require masks in the state, and I think just a week ago, um, pardoned anyone who had been charged, fined, <laughs> and so so on and so forth for a masking violation. So, and meanwhile, as I think your listeners know, New York did not do as well. Florida has more people and a lot more old people. <laughs> this is the way I always thought of Florida growing up, where 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 old New Yorkers go to retire and die, um, there are a lot of old people in Florida, and yet there are, he had in in the state of Florida more people, more old people, um, at least one third fewer deaths. Um, so of course the media wanted to go after him, and this woman that I wrote about last week, um, I don't get into the t- details of her lies about DeSantis. That's been covered beautifully in Human Events and National Review. I'm just really interested in in how crazy this woman is. And the fact that the media did not do 10 seconds of Googling to find out that this is a woman who's been institutionalized, repeatedly jailed, charged with stalking, um, medicated by court order. And most of this is contained in her own manifesto describing the object of of her obsession, this former student of hers she had an affair with. Um, I, 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 I like murder mysteries and one of my favorite genres um, in fact, it was a big smash hit a couple of years ago, um, both both a book, and I think it was made into a TV show. Anyway, it's called You, and I like these. They start off, you have a narrator, you're going along with the narrator, and bit by bit, you realize the narrator is crazy, <laughs> as it is in You. turns out it's a serial killer. Um, and that's what I felt like reading Rebecca Jones' 342-page manifesto while she's married to someone, not the object of her stalking, um, she's coming home and, and, and working on this 342-page manifesto, which describes the ankle bracelet, the institutionalization, um, the jailing, um, the, the, the one I sort of constantly the incident of the media promoting her. She composed, you know, Fortune magazine, 40 under 40 in healthcare for 2020. She was Forbes magazine, technology person of the year. Why? <laughs> because she was attacking Governor DeSantis of Florida. But my favorite of all of them, which is the one I concentrated um, on at, at the second half of the column, is Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC, who featured Rebecca, Rebecca Jones on four shows in December. It was about this raid on her house after she was fired, it looks like, and it is alleged. Um, she hacked into the Florida emergency medical alert system accessed people's private emails and sent out some lunatic private message of her own about, you know, act now, expose the governor. Um, They got recalled at some point, and she signed it as if this was coming from the Florida Department of Health. So there was a warrant, oh, and Comcast said, came from her house, there was a warrant to search her house, take her computers, to prove this, what is a very serious hacking felony. She comes out, finally, she makes the cops wait for 20, 20 minutes, 
She finally comes out. The policeman walks in. She was setting up a video camera, so we see this on her video camera. As the policeman walks in, he unholsters his gun and calls for anyone else in the house to come downstairs. Um, pretty sure that's standard operating procedure for executing a search warrant. But all these MSNBC hosts, including Lawrence O'Donnell, act as if what Rebecca Jones is screaming in the background, which is, he's pointing a gun at my child, um, act as if that's what we're seeing on, on the screen. And, and it isn't. She is like this is hysterical woman behavior. She's screaming something, even though we can see on the video that is not what's happening. She's like that 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 um, dog walker in Central Park who called nine one one on the African American man um, bird watcher who's calmly speaking to her, and she's screaming to the dispatcher, "An African American man is is threatening me!" And yet, all the hosts on MSNBC showed this video with no one pointing a gun at anyone and saying. Oh my gosh, what if he had killed one of her children? Look, they're pointing the gun. So this is this is your American And we're speaking to Ann Coulter.com. Go, oh, sorry, we're speaking to Ann Coulter. Go to Ann Coulter.com <laughs> for her latest column. She and the website are almost one and the same. Um, but y- y- I have two observations for you, Ann. First off, Rebecca Jones, 342-page manifesto about her love life and, and all of her crazy escapades. Sounds like she needs an editor. Second thing... <laughs> is that the the people that the left holds up, and this this keeps going. You mentioned one. I mean, I remember when Michael Avenatti was the most frequent guest on CNN, and there were people <laughs> paid to work in our business who were discussing him as a possible presidential candidate. And I, I'm not kidding. They actually, yeah. and then it turns out that he was stealing money from a paraplegic client. I mean, it's just the, like the worst guy in the world. I mean, the worst lawyer imaginable. They hold up people as heroes who aren't only – it's not just that they're not heroes. They're yeah. actually bad guys. Dangerous, <laughs> yeah, dangerous psychopaths. <laughs> it's remarkable, and there's not a bit of introspection or embarrassment. I mean, I, I just wanted your reaction to this as well. We have – it turns out the lab leak theory is really what the smart people were thinking it was all along, which is the much more likely scenario, the more scientifically based. Turns out – Rebecca Jones is crazy, and Ron DeSantis did do an excellent job, unlike Governor Cuomo and Governor Newsom running his state. There's never any embarrassment from the media. I mean, I've been playing montages on different shows all week about all the times they said, oh, Donald Trump's lab leak thesis. Oh, Senator Tom Cotton, such a moron. You know, Harvard Army Ranger, yada, yada, whatever. He was such a moron. He thought the lab leak thesis was real. And you sit here, you go, they're just not embarrassed at all, are they, Ann? They're incapable of it. Not only are they not embarrassed, but, but I, what I hope is enough of the public has seen at least a few of these that they start to realize who in the media they can trust and whom they cannot trust. Um, because we're going to go through this again and again and again. Remember the one, I'm sorry why I, this popped into my head, uh, I guess because I'm reading Alex Marlowe's book. Remember when they claimed Donald Trump had called fallen troops suckers and losers? And that was I like was with you, Anne, when that story broke, remember? And we looked at each other and said, no way. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, normal people said no way. Oh, my gosh, did that go through the media like wildfire? Obama was citing it as if it was a fact a few weeks later. So I just, I think it's worth, you know, talking about this, pointing it out, so the public starts to realize you cannot believe the mainstream media. 
They are bad news, folks. Literally <laughs> bad news. Yeah. Ann Coulter, everybody, check out her latest column at AnnCoulter.com. And Miss Ann, thank you for the kind words today about the big announcement. Really appreciate I'm that. So and happy. Congratulations again. My reelection, uh, my primary race uh, is going to be a focus. Uh, you've heard President Trump say that uh, he intends to play a role in this race. Uh, and, and so I anticipate it's going to be a hard fought race. I anticipate it's one that there will be a lot of national attention on. And I really do think it's one that will uh, be, be a moment where the people of Wyoming can, can demonstrate to the country uh, our commitment to the Constitution. And uh, no matter what happens, I, I've got uh, eight opponents right now. Uh, if uh, the former president decides he's going to endorse somebody, uh, the choice for the people of Wyoming will be very clear. And they'll be able to choose between, um, uh, you know, me, the candidate and the incumbent who uh, has demonstrated uh, faithfulness, fidelity to the Constitution um, and and fighting for the people of Wyoming versus a candidate who has pledged their oath, pledged their their oath and allegiance to Donald Trump. And uh, that is a race that I uh, look forward to having. Uh, It's a race I intend to win. And it's a race that will be very important in terms of of the future of our party and and the future of our our, uh, republic. Yeah, I hope she loses. Just I'll say that I, I hope that she loses. And it's not out of uh, it's not out of fealty to Donald Trump. Want to be clear on that. It's not because, oh, she went at Trump or she offended Trump. It's because what I have seen from Congresswoman Cheney is a a willingness. I, I don't know if she's just obtuse and doesn't understand what's going on or if it's just she's so selfish, she doesn't care. But what I have seen from her is a willingness to be a useful tool of the left against her own party. And I just I cannot abide that. I cannot support that. The fact that she really exists now in the media, in the ecosystem of the national conversation as an excuse for crazy Democrats to talk incessantly about the January 6th insurrection and that she plays into that and she supports that rhetoric means she has become a political liability for her own party. She should just go join the Lincoln Project and stop all the nonsense. Or she should go work at some think tank in D.C. that's churning out white papers on why we should invade yet another Middle Eastern country, you know, and make sure she buys a lot of shares in Raytheon and and Lockheed Martin before like that. That's that's what she should do. She shouldn't pretend that what she's doing is representing the interests of the American people who supported Donald Trump in either election or both elections and who support the message, if not always the rhetoric and the actions of the man himself she won't give it up so we're gonna have to make her in a sense by by making her lose i hope she loses re-election and i'm going to do what i can to uh to push to that end which as you all remember from yesterday i i'm going to be having uh quite a quite a reach soon across the nation so that'll be helpful that'll be good Another person within the GOP whom I whom I I do respect and I think is in overall is right on on most things. So with Liz Cheney, 
that's a fundamental disagreement that I have with her on a, on a core issue for. And look, it's not personal. She might be a lovely person. I have no idea. You know, I remember I met, I met her dad years ago and I was a young CIA guy and, and I, I liked Vice President Cheney. He was he was uh, he was very gracious and, and very friendly. Um, so so I'll say that. But I'm just talking about the politics here. I think she's on the wrong side of this one and I'm not going to let it go. Tim Scott, he's good on so many issues. But I, I don't think he's right when he starts to talk about law enforcement reform as an urgent need. I, so this is a disagreement. Liz Cheney, I got a problem with. Tim Scott, I got a disagreement with. And, and here's, here's, for example, I just want you to hear what he says, then I'll tell you why or what part of this I disagree with. Play five. In the last 20 years as an African-American driving without speeding, simply just driving while black. But at the same time, I've gone door to door with police officers delivering Christmas presents in the poorest communities in my neighborhoods. And I will say that most officers are good people doing good work for very low pay. And so for us to not understand both sides of the coin is to go into an argument or to a discussion or a debate blind. I'm not blind. I have confidence in our law enforcement. I know that we can make it better. We can make it safer for the officers and the communities. And that's why I'm at the table, because I've experienced both sides and I come out a champion for officers and will champion the cause of making communities safer and restoring confidence from communities for the officers, because the officers are willing to do what very few people can do and are also willing to do. I Look, what he said, there's nothing bad about what he says, but this this I can't separate it from when BLM got going and Senator Scott was trying to push forward a, some kind of police reform bill. And this is all rooted in, in, in my view, in the falsehood that we've got a big policing problem in this country and police the problem. I don't believe that. I don't see the evidence for that. Anecdotally, sure, I'm a. I'm a white guy who grew up in New York City, so I, I have a very limited view of my personal interaction with law enforcement. But I've worked with law enforcement professionally and read everything I can about all the numbers, all the stats, all the data on crime and policing across the country. Cops are not the problem. Now, what Senator Scott here said, again, it's there's nothing wrong with what he said, per se. It's just I don't like the continued uh, pushing of or even accepting the narrative that if only we changed how cops do things a little bit, if, if only we changed how law enforcement um, approaches communities, we'd be in such a better place. I think law enforcement's doing a great job. It's kind of how I feel about gun laws. I think we got enough gun laws in this country. In fact, I think we have too many. I don't think we need to talk about more. I think we got enough oversight and I think we have Law enforcement doing a darn good job across the country. Anybody who steps out of line, who breaks the law, who violates someone's rights should be punished. They usually are punished. End of story. I don't think we have to keep playing into this false narrative. We got much bigger problems when it comes to violence in communities than cops. They're a tiny problem. The unbroken thread discovering the wisdom of tradition in an age of chaos. That is the new book out from my friend Sarab Amari. He is the opinion editor at The New York Post. Go check out The Unbroken Thread now wherever you get your books. 
So, Rob, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Buck. Tell us about the book. What does it say? What does it mean? Why should people go get it? Sure. So it's a book I wrote for my son, Maximilian. He was two when I started writing it. He's now four years old. And it's a book that's born of my anxieties about the kind of man that our culture will chisel out of him. I'm an immigrant from Iran. I'm enormously grateful to the United States, to the West. But I feel like what has made the be- the West best, which is our traditions, broadly speaking, our Judeo-Christian and our classical or Greco-Roman traditions is really the foundation of our freedoms. And if we lose that, our freedoms actually become a source of disorder and chaos. Um, This is not a prediction. I would argue that we're going through it right now in a very thick way. And so, um, you know, I'm trying to tether my son to something better than I can just offer him. I want to tether him to those traditions. And the way I do that is by posing 12 questions Um, each of which pokes holes in some of our kind of liberal, secular, technocratic certainties. Questions like, why does God want you to take a day off, which is about the Sabbath? Or how must you serve your parents, which is about the question of filial piety? And I explore each of these questions because I'm not a theologian, I'm not a philosopher, I'm just a storyteller and a journalist. I explore each of the questions through the life of one great thinker. So, for example, the question about the Sabbath is through the great Jewish mystic Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. The question about would, would God need politics is, of course, St. Augustine. The question about filial piety is none other than Confucius, who thought the most about how, how we should honor our parents. So it's a kind of genre that I created, and a lot of readers are enjoying it because it's, <clears throat> it's philosophical, it's theological, but you don't feel it at all. As you read it, you're just encountering the kind of life stories and dramas of these great figures, and along the way, ideas are introduced, but in this kind of seamless way. Tell me about the, the beginning. You mentioned the title is The Unbroken Thread. So just the, the origins. Where does the thread start? That's a very good point. So actually, it's about Maximilian Kolbe. My son, his name is Max, is named after this great Polish Catholic saint. He was a Franciscan friar who was canonized. That is, he was declared a saint by the Catholic Church. Because of this great act of sacrifice, he was arrested by the Nazis, thrown into Auschwitz. But when he heard an, uh, another one of the condemned men who was supposed to be punished uh, by starvation, when that man cried out, my wife, my children, St. Maximilian chose to go in that man's place and, and died in his place. And so I, I, the thread really is the thread that I hope will tie my son to his namesake, Maximilian Kolbe, but more broadly to the ideas and the formation that made the sacrifice of the Colby possible. Um, the idea that freedom isn't just having maximum choice or just trying to get ahead in life in a material way or defying every kind of tradition and thinking you're free. Maximilian Colby's brand of freedom, and at that moment in Auschwitz, of all places, he was the freest man in Europe in 1941, is freedom that's rooted in authority, rooted in <clears throat> self-sacrifice, rooted in tradition. So the thread is is the thread tying the two Maximilians together. We're speaking <clears throat> together. to Sarab Amari. He's the opinion editor at the New York Post. He has a book out, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Uh, Sarab, tell me about the difference between liberty and license as you describe and analyze it in your book. Absolutely. So this is a concept that was very 
familiar to the more religious of our founding fathers, especially John Adams, probably the kind of paradigmatically religious American founder. And obviously it was very familiar to the entire classical and Christian tradition, Cicero, Aristotle, uh, on down to St. Thomas Aquinas and so on. And the idea is that true freedom is actually freedom to do what you ought to do, freedom to do what are your duties in life, whether that's as a man, as a husband, as a wife, whatever that may be, as a citizen, and that you become truly free by mastering your own baser passions. And in this way, not only can you resist a kind of external tyrant, whether that's a communist apparatchik or a Nazi or whoever kind of tyrant like that, but above all, the tyrant, the tyrant inside, the little person inside you that <laughs> seeks after just base self-gratification. That was the, the, that's the ancient idea of freedom, and we find it in, the, in, in, in even some of the Far Eastern traditions, in Christianity, in Judaism, in Greco-Roman thought. The modern idea, I would argue, the modern idea of liberty is too often basically what you said is license. It's just like, I should just be unrestrained to do whatever I want to do. And what I show in the book is that actually the, that second kind of freedom, which gets rid of limits, gets rid of tradition, gets rid of, tries to free itself from every barrier, actually leaves you less free. So an obvious example we see today is the ideology of gender. Right? Tradition defined gender in a very kind of obvious way. Men and women were different, but equal in dignity. Um, but there is a fundamental difference between them. Now we want to say, I want to define my own sense of gender identity. And that seems like a liberation. But in practice, it's working out to forcing us to say absurd things, like the idea that men can become women, or the idea that um, you know, there are 135 genders. This idea that was proposed to us as liberation, when it works itself out, actually becomes a, a source of restriction and totalitarianism far worse than anything tradition ever offered. We're speaking to Sarab Amari, author of The Unbroken Thread. He's the opinion editor at the New York Post. It's a great book. I just bought my copy today. I recommend you all do the same. Sarab, is there a, is there a root fallacy that, that you identify or that, that you believe exists for so much of how the West and honestly how the left is taking so much of our society in the wrong direction? Or is there one, one fallacious idea that you find the most pernicious, the most destructive, that, that concerns you to the greatest degree? Absolutely. It's, a, it's an ancient heresy that never goes away, and it's Gnosticism. Gnostic religions emerged soon after Christ, in you know first, second, third century after Christ. And they were religions that said that um, what you are internally, your spirit, your mind, is totally separate from your body. So there is this radical distinction between mind and body. And the mind can try to will itself over human nature, over the body, and get whatever it wants. And you see that today. Obviously, we just spoke about gender ideology. That's one example of it. The idea of transhumanism, which is the next stage in all of this, where it's like I, I, human beings are just mind stuff, and therefore we don't need human interaction, uh, embodied interaction. This is Gnosticism. And in fact, the COVID restrictions really showed the Gnostic streak in modern liberalism, where people say, well, you don't need to actually ever shake hands again. You don't need to... Uh, if you're a student, actually meet your professor and shake his hand and meet him in person. You just can do everything technologically at a distance. 
so that is obviously were different than the Gnostic heresies in the sense that they believed in all sorts of demons and, and polytheistic gods and so forth. They don't have that anymore. But the impulse that I am not an embodied person who inherits obligations from my body, from my family, from my community, I could do whatever I want just kind of on the Internet technologically. That is a Gnostic heresy. Were you surprised and, I mean, I would assume deeply troubled by, but were you surprised by how quietly and meekly in this country religious communities allowed the state to say you can't practice your religion because of COVID? It was it was very disturbing, but, you know, I, I, the, the darker thought here is that we've gone through such a deep level of secularization that people don't really, even people who are nominally members of parishes or synagogues or what have you, if you really believe that, that you know, there is a God who makes moral demands on you and who wants you to worship him, then you will not so easily succumb to these kinds of rules. So I worry about like the level of faith that was, or maybe the lack of faith that was revealed, and, and certainly some religious leaders who were just so quick to kind of turn over and show the belly uh, to... to uh, the kind of COVID regime, very depressing stuff. Yeah, I was somebody who was wondering, you know, that the Jesuits like to get very, I went to a Jesuit high school and they're very outspoken on issues of social justice. A lot of them are very open borders and they involve themselves in politics. But when it came down to shutting down churches all across the country for months and months on end, I never heard a peep from them. And I got to tell you, I was pretty, uh, disappointed but i don't know how surprised i could really say i am because i think and i wanted to pose this to you we're speaking to sarab amari who is the uh, opinion editor at the new york post his book is the unbroken thread discovering the wisdom of tradition in an age of chaos so rob i i feel like there has been an infiltration of leftism marxism social justiceism uh which isn't really a thing but you know what i mean uh within even even traditional Christian faiths, the Catholic faith specifically, and I think it's it's very uh, very concerning about where we're going in the future. Even if you're within a faith tradition or community, yeah. I mean, what I find find disturbing is not the yearning for justice, obviously, because that's so deeply embedded in biblical religion, or or care for. Right. Well, as you know, social justice is not really justice. It, 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 exactly. It, it, what you're talking about is kind of a corporate ideology of the blue check media class the infiltration of that into communities of faith and including the catholic faith is really disturbing so for example you see at catholic universities widespread proliferation of this kind of critical race theory and and, and uh, uh uh whatever goes along with it this kind of uh, idea that human beings are have a taint of uh, original sin but not original sin as the Bible describes it, but original racial sin, so that if you're a white person, you're sort of unwashably and untouchable because of your racial sins. This has gotten into Catholic universities, and it's very sad because Catholicism has a much better vocabulary for dealing with racism, and it's in Genesis. It says God made man in his own image. So everyone is made in God's image, so racism is obviously a sin. We don't need this new kind of ideology which is itself, as you know, uh, extremely racist as a way to combat racism in, in Catholic communities. We have our own language, we have our own concepts, which are much older, much sounder than what Ibrahim Kindi and critical race theorists would offer. 
what makes you optimistic about the country, the world that your son is inheriting? Uh, I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. As a, as a person of faith, obviously, I'm called to be hopeful as one of the theological virtues. In the immediate, what, what faces us ahead doesn't really make me optimistic. But I do see glimmers of hope, I would say, in um, I know a lot of young uh, religious kind of activists, thinkers. They're not they're just coming up right now. So you wouldn't know their names. They're in their early 20s. But they're very serious about the faith. They recognize that the nation has gone down a really dark path. And they want, to, and in, they're young enough to want to try to pull us out of it. So that kind of thing <clears throat> gives me hope. But sometimes it really feels like we're—I don't know—we're headed for something like Blade Runner, the, the, the dystopian movie, and we can't. Uh, well, that's what I think. But I was hoping, Sarab, you're going to tell me it's all—it's all, it's all going to be okay. <laughs> but I well, guess... it's all going to be okay on a cosmic scale. God's yeah, there we charge. go. In, in the afterlife, we'll all be hanging out, and things will be all right. But for now, things are. Uh... Looking a little bit challenging. Sarab Amari, everybody, go check out The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. And also, Sarab, thanks to you and your team for all the great work you've done at the New York Post, particularly over the last year. You guys have just been on it, and it really has made a difference, especially here in New York. Thank you, sir. Oh, man. Producer Mark. What's up, man? As I said off the air to you before, I'm not going to miss when you say my name like that. That makes me sad. Oh. Um, what the audience doesn't hear usually is he usually sings that. There's a producer so. Mark song that I sing in the morning to wake him up when we start the show. I don't like know before that it's we to go. Wake me up. And and if he if he doesn't hear it, he doesn't really you know, it's like I'm getting him in the zone. It's game time. You know, he doesn't really he's gotta he's gotta pick up on that. So it's really a one sided feeling on that. So so saith you, sir. So saith you. But um, let me get into a little, a little bit of roll call before the weekend, and we'll do... Actually, can we hit the roll call? Go for it. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for roll call. Yeah, I'm going down to Miami. Uh, welcome to the... Blah blah, where the heat is on. I'm going to Miami. You know what I'm saying? That I, I that was do the know w- this song. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're gonna have that. much better better weather uh, down there than you would up here this weekend. Yeah, I'm excited to be in Miami. If you see a guy with poofy hair walking around South Beach, it is Buck Sexton. And if you're Team Buck, which you are, if you're listening to this, come say hi. Is a uh, big time Buck Sexton gonna get mentioned? Uh, like recognized a lot in Miami now. Eh, it's it's radio, so people would have to hear my voice mostly. Ah, that's true. That's always fun though when I'm in a car with a with a Uber driver, a cab driver, and I just you know just exchange some pleasantries, and then they kind of have that like they kind of cock their head to one side and go hmm, and I'm like yeah yeah that's they're like I you know I, I've been I've been listening on radio for years. And I said well thank you sir, and that's always very very nice. I appreciate that. All right, I don't have a ton of time for roll call today. We will do a a whole bunch of roll call when we come back from the holiday weekend because i've got as you can imagine yesterday after the after the big announcement of me moving uh, 12 to 3 into the rush limbaugh slot with uh my co-host clay travis uh once once that came in i mean it, it was i don't know i can't even get to tell you the number of hundreds and hundreds of messages on every different platform and and it might i've never gotten so many text messages on my phone in my life it was a, it was quite a day 
So I'm going to go celebrate with my brothers this weekend. Should be a lot of fun. Um, but here we go. Well, you know what? Producer Mark, I just, we don't even really have. Well, here, Jacob writes, I didn't even say it, but congratulations. OSS here. I knew you were next in line. Jacob, thank you, my man. Um, guys, yesterday was a big victory for all of us. All of you who listened to this show, the team, it was a really good day yesterday. And we're going to have many, many more ahead. So God bless you all. Thank you so much for listening, for all your support. We're going to have so many cool things ahead, and, uh, and it's all possible because of you. Have a very good Memorial Day weekend, a restful, reflective uh, Memorial Day weekend uh, f- with you and your families. And I'll see you on Tuesday, Shields High.